Initially, it doesn't make sense when you hear it. It just doesn't. Patients are on an estrogen-containing birth control, but yet they still complain of things like vaginal dryness or possibly even hot flashes. And healthcare providers may be quick to brush it aside as not an estrogen problem since they are on an estrogen-containing medication, right? I mean, that makes sense, at least initially. Just the other day, I was approached in clinic by a young reproductive age woman who was having this persistent vaginal dryness and discomfort during penetration, and she was on the vaginal birth control ring. All right, let's just say what it is. It's NuvaRing, not throwing NuvaRing under the bus. This is just what she reported. Well, she had no other medical issues, was otherwise healthy, and she just couldn't figure out what was going on because she wanted to have sex. It was consensual. It wasn't forced. She was in the mood. She really wanted to get it on. Uh, Just a lot of vaginal dryness. And she was so conflicted and confused because she was on an estrogen-containing birth control. Well, after confirming again that the act was consensual, we talked about this issue of nuvering possibly causing her to be hypoestrogenemic. So that, of course, spurred that whole discussion. And in typical fashion, I thought, yeah, we should talk about that. That's actually a pretty good topic. (laughs) And so here we are. Yes, once again, we have bumped what I'm supposed to do. And now we're going to focus on this issue because I think it really is a big deal, especially in our patients that are younger and are very thin and may not have a lot of peripheral estrogen conversion. I don't want these patients to be brushed aside as, well, surely it can't be estrogen because you're on an estrogen product. So in this episode, let's cover a combination birth control and serum E2 levels. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Again, as I stated in a past episode, I had this patient encounter that I summarized in the intro. And sure enough, as I had put that out into the ether, and you have to look back into a previous episode to figure out what the heck that even means. (laughs) I think we talked about that in the momnesia episode. Yeah, that was a previous momnesia episode. Uh, But I had that patient encounter, uh, so that was out there into the universe. Uh, And then I received a Facebook message from a physician in Dallas asking about this very, very thing. And so I thought once again, wow, this, there's, this is beyond coincidence. This happens a lot. And so I thought, let's go ahead and get this topic out there. And here we are. Having hypoestrogenemic symptoms makes sense for some birth control, doesn't it? I mean, we expect that with some kinds of hormonal contraception, especially some of the progestin-only types that are highly suppressive of the hypothalamic-pituitary axis. And the one that comes to mind right off the bat, of course, is Depo-Provera. Now, I know the focus of this episode is on combination hormonal birth control, but we need to put this first into proper perspective because when you take a look at progestin-only methods, the hypoestrogenemia response or symptoms make sense. But even within that category of progestin-only, they're not all equal in their degree of hypothalamic-pituitary ovarian suppression. They're all different. We are definitely going to cover the normal estrogen levels in a non-hormonally suppressed female. For sure, we're going to do that. And we're going to talk about the influence of 
combination birth control on those levels. But I do want to start with Depo-Provera because it is a prototypic great wet blanket over the hypothalamic-pituitary-ovarian axis. I mean, it suppresses that very well. So I just want to start there as what this looks like when something is greatly suppressing that axis. Because hypoestrogenemia is, of course, a big deal with Depo-Provera which is why there's that black box warning of two years in the adolescent patient in bone health, even though ACOG states, hey, I'd rather them have great birth control than worry about bone health in this issue because you can try to make up bone density in other ways, uh, calcium, vitamin D, intake, weight-bearing exercise. But there is a real, uh, a real risk here with hyperestrogenemia and depo. I think Depo definitely has a role in the right patient population. It can help prevent sickle episodes. It can raise seizure thresholds of some seizure patients. Uh, so it definitely has some advantages. I don't really like Depo right off the bat just because if I give it to someone and they don't like it, uh, I, I can't undo it. I can't take it out. I mean, it's in their system. Plus, the dose is just pretty big. I mean, 150 milligrams IM every 10 to 12 weeks or so. It's just a pretty large dose. I know there's a sub-Q form of Depo. Uh, it's about 104 milligrams, but most people do the IM. But that whole issue for sickle cell anemia, it really does need to be pointed out. That is an advantage of Depo, and that goes all the way back to 2007. The Cochrane database reviewed that data in April of 2007. And yeah, it concluded, look, we may not be sure exactly how it works, but the limited available data, quote, does suggest that depomedroxyprogesterone acetate is a safe contraceptive option for women with sickle cell disease. And in addition to providing effective contraception, DMPA may reduce sickle pain crises, end quote. All right, fine. So we've got Depo as the prototype of great hypothalamic pituitary ovarian suppressor causing low serum estrogen levels. We get that. But remember, not all progestin-only methods do that same degree of suppression. Mirena, for example, the intrauterine system, does not suppress the hypothalamic pituitary axis. Remember, the majority of its function is as an intrauterine contraceptive agent, knowing, of course, that there is some probably some paracrine effect, and there is some influence on ovulation. But that influence on ovulation isn't up on top on the higher brain centers. It's likely more local at the level of the ovary. Now, this has been checked in several ways, either by serum levels or with ultrasounds. And it seems that Mirena has this uh, anti-ovulatory effect by luteinizing a developing follicle. Okay, so the serum levels that uh, absorb of, of the progestin from the device aren't enough to suppress the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. That's why even though ovulation can be suppressed, it's not being shut off up centrally. It's likely being shut off at the level of the ovary peripherally. So yes, Mirena, the intrauterine system, can shut down ovulation, likely at the local level, but it's variable and it's not always that predictable. In a one-year study, about 45% of cycles were ovulatory, and in another study after four years, 75% of cycles were ovulatory. But based on ultrasound imaging, this is likely not a suppression of ovulation at the hypothalamic pituitary level, but it's rather at the ovary itself. And this is also stated in one of the FDA's instructions for use, the IFUs for Mirena. As stated in an IFU, quote, sometimes atresia of the follicle is delayed and the follicle may continue to grow. 
enlarging follicles have been diagnosed in about 12% of the subjects using Mirena, end quote. And just to be thorough, though, I want to throw this out, that yes, the unruptured or the luteinized follicle is a thing, but it's rarely a big issue. The IFU goes on to say, quote, most of these follicles are asymptomatic, although some may be accompanied by pelvic pain or dyspareunia. In most cases, the enlarged follicles disappear spontaneously during two to three months of observation, end quote. Just recently in 2022, Jin Zhao Zhao, I know I'm not saying that right. I'm trying, guys, but it's XIAO-XIAO. So I said it the best way that I could. In 2022, they published their analysis of reproductive female hormones in hormonal IUS wearers. They assessed estradiol levels in the serum as well as FSH and LH. And there was no significant differences between those that wore a Mirena device versus those who did not wear one. On the other hand, like Depo-Provera, Nexplanon, the eternogestrel implant, does inhibit ovulation at the hypothalamic level, with serum estradiol levels being in the low 30 range. That's 30 picograms per ml. We're going to get into those levels in a minute. All to say that that level is pretty low. It's very, very comparable to the level found in menopause or at the very early follicular phase of the ovulatory cycle. Now, if you go, well, wait a minute, in menopause, shouldn't it be like zero estrogen? Uh, no, because there's still some conversion of estrogen in the body, and there's still some basal, very low-level tonic production of estradiol, so it doesn't go to zero. Some women may have zero uh, because the range is actually zero to 30, uh, but in general, 30 or, or under uh, is menopausal range. All right, We're going to get into the normal levels of serum estradiol in a minute. But just remember that they are measured in terms of uh, picograms per ml uh, and typically under 30 is compatible with very low levels of estrogen or menopausal status. All right, when we come back, let's tackle the actual focus of this episode, which is serum estrogen levels with use of combination hormonal birth control. Remember that the vast majority of estrogen in combination birth control in the U.S. is ethanyl estradiol. That's a synthetic estrogen. Orally, this has a sizable first hepatic pass effect. Ethanyl estradiol sulfates are the major circulating metabolites of ethanyl estradiol. It's interesting how far we've come in medicine and in research, because if you look at some of the older publications, they now look a bit off in their conclusions, knowing now what we know. In 1972, in the Gray Journal, the American Journal of OBGYN, Michel et al., that's M-I-S-H-E-L-L, published, quote, serum estradiol in women ingesting combination oral contraceptive steroids, end quote. These researchers found that serum estradiol in women ingesting oral birth control pills had levels that were, quote, within 20 to 30 picograms per ml, end quote. So let's stop there for a minute. All right. So 1972, uh, this is using a 50 milligram dose of mestronol, which was another type of estrogen, compatible to our 35 uh, micrograms of ethanyl estradiol. All right. So this is an older formulation. 
Uh, nonetheless, they gave women steroids, uh, uh, birth control pills combination, and then drew their level. And they're like, hey, you've got some estrogen in there, 20 to 30 picograms per ml. Woohoo! Listen to what they state. Quote, this level of estrogen should be sufficient to prevent any harmful effects associated with estrogen deficiency. End quote. What? I mean, we just stated before the break that the level of estradiol to be considered menopausal was exactly what they reported. All right, that's pretty crazy, huh? So now 50 years from that publication, uh, we've gone to, man, 20 to 30 micrograms per ml. That's nothing. And no wonder you have hypoestrogenic symptoms. But in the 1970s, they're like, oh, nope, can't be that. That should be enough. You shouldn't have any estrogen deficiency symptoms. Wow. See why there's confusion? Some of that may have lingered even today. That's wild. That is definitely not enough to prevent hypoestrogenemic symptoms. But even it makes the point back in 1972 that taking hormonal birth control pills, combination birth control, is not the same thing as being on estrogen replacement. You're still hypoestrogenemic. I'm going to explain why coming up. Okay, so check this out. That same author from 1972, Michel, published another radiomino assay to assess serum estrogen levels after oral ingestion of ethanyl estradiol in 1980. All right, so eight years later, he's like, let me take a look at this thing again. This was in the journal Contraception. The first author of this was Brenner. The title of that publication was Serum Levels of Ethanyl Estradiol Following the Ingestion Alone or in Combination Contraceptive Formulations. Fine. Now, this was actually pretty neat because they actually gave various amounts of ethnyl estradiol to not only menstruating participants, reproductive age, but also to postmenopausal women. Well, if your first question is, why would you give it to postmenopausal women? Actually, it's a pretty brilliant design because they should be very low in their baseline. So if this is any kind of, quote, estrogen replacement, then they should have higher levels of serum estradiol, right? I mean, it sounds it's, it's a pretty good design. It sounds good. But following the administration of a single dose of ultra-low-dose ethnyl estradiol, that's 20 micrograms, just like we have today, those three postmenopausal women had their serum peak estrogen levels drawn, and they ranged from 30, once again, there's that 30 again, to about 58 picograms per ml. So they said, hey, look, it did go up a little bit just above postmenopausal range, but definitely not the same that occurs in a spontaneous cycle. And I'll tell you what those numbers are in a minute. And of course, the same thing was reproduced in the reproductive age in the menstruating women. All to say, whether it was a 20 microgram or a 35 microgram pill, it was not the same levels of peaks and sustained rises of estradiol that occur in a spontaneous ovulatory cycle. All right, podcast family, here's a clinical pearl. One of the best reviews on this that I found on serum estradiol levels in a patient on combination birth control uh, is from a June 2020 publication from the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology. The title is Bones and Hormonal Contraception in Adolescent Girls. This next explanation and excerpt comes directly from that publication. Healthy young women not on combination oral contraceptives have mean serum estradiol levels of 120 picograms per ml with mid-cycle peaks of over 200 pg per ml. 
women on combination oral birth control containing 30 micrograms of ethnyl estradiol have mean estradiol levels around 44 picograms per ml, and those on oral con- combination birth control that have 20 micrograms of ethnyl estradiol have mean levels of around 40 picograms per ml. The article goes on to say, quote, some investigators have expressed concern about the use of ultra-low-dose combination birth control on bone mass acquisition during adolescence, end quote. Before we get ready to wrap up the episode, let's put those numbers into perspective, okay? So somebody not on combination birth control have mean serum estradiol levels uh, around the low hundreds, right? 100 to 120 with a mid-cycle peak of over 200. Remember, postmenopausal range is anywhere from 0 to 30. Do you see those differences? So according to this publication, if a woman is taking a 30 microgram uh, combination birth control pill, their levels are around 44. And if you drop it down to around a 20, then their levels are around 41, just above the menopausal range. Do you see that? So yes, hey, they've got estrogen for sure. It's not zero, but it really is not the same as an endogenous serum estradiol level. So remember those numbers. Uh, the short answer is it has to do with the way ethanol estradiol is metabolized. When it goes through first pass, it's quickly metabolized into uh, its sulfate form, and it just does not have the same effect as, its, as endogenous ovarian estradiol. As an aside, remember there's three kinds of estrogen, estrone, uh, that is predominantly by um, peripheral conversion of androstenedione. There's estradiol made from the granulosa cells, and then estriol, uh, which is only made from the human placenta. So that's during pregnancy, all right? So we're talking about mainly here estradiol. So ethnyl estradiol, which is a synthetic form of estrogen, is not the same thing after metabolism to endogenous serum estradiol. Now that we're at the end, what's the final message? Why do we do this episode? I mean, what, what was the point here? Uh, well, it's very simple, that even though a woman a, is... Now that we're at the end of the episode, I mean, what's the point? What's the take-home message, right? What's the final clinical pearl? Well, the clinical pearl is pretty easy. Just because a woman is on an estrogen-containing product, specifically some kind of combination hormonal contraception, does not make them immune to hypoestrogenemic effects. Uh, It is best practice to not use an ultra-low-dose pill in an adolescent female. So we use 30 to 35 uh, micrograms in our practice uh, on women unless they have some other weird medical comorbidity, at which point you have to consult the uh, WHO, the MEC chart, the medical eligibility chart. But otherwise, 30 to 35 mics is the way to go, trying to keep estrogen as, quote, high as possible, which we know is a misnomer because it's not high at all, but higher than it would be with an ultra-low-dose pill. But if they're under 30, stick with a 30 or 35 microgram pill. Uh, and then over 30, then you can try to drop that down a little bit if, if necessary. Some use the age of 40. Like, oh, I keep on a 30 microgram pill until the age of 40. Fantastic. Um, so it's the one caveat uh, to medicine and hormone therapy where we say, oh, lowest dose is best. Uh, yes, that's true. But that's for estrogen replacement, not for hormonal contraception. Okay, so for hormonal contraception, in order to avoid some hypoestrogenemic effects, just consider the dose of estrogen that you're giving the patient. So back to our patient from the intro, Nuvaring, which is 15 micrograms of ethanol estradiol, uh, again, very low dose. And in this case was given her hypoestrogenemic symptoms. Now, we didn't take it off Nuvaring. I mean, it's a great form of birth control, but we just kind of walked through that. Uh, we talked about water-based lubricants and silicone-based lubricants or oil-based based on their needs. 
uh, and then even talked about vaginal moisturizers uh, to take away some of those complaints. Remember, this was only during sexual intimacy, it wasn't daily. Uh, you can also do a little bit of topical estrogen, uh, but that's very short term. And again, I always try to do non-pharmacological uh, uh, if possible. So anyway, I hope that that info helped. I just wanted to make that point that just because a patient is on estrogen doesn't mean they're immune to hypoestrogenemic effects. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. As always, we appreciate you. Thank you for your Facebook messages. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for your podcast topic uh, suggestions. We listen to that. uh, And that's why our schedule is always messed up. But nonetheless, it's a labor of love. (laughs) We're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.